Hello and welcome to this edition of The Screen Podcast, which is the podcast for the global screen business publication, Screen International. I'm Matt Mueller, Screen's editor, and in this episode, we'll be continuing our deep dive into the awards season races, which it's fair to say really switched into gear this week with a trio of events. First, the announcement of the Golden Globes winners on January 9th, followed by the reveal of the BAFTA Film Awards long lists and the Screen Actors Guild nominations, which were both unveiled on January 12th. We'll be discussing all three of these key signposts on the long road to Oscar and BAFTA glory and making up the we on this week's episode. I am joined once again by my illustrious colleagues, Fanula Halligan, Screen's Reviews Editor-in-Chief Film Critic, and Charles Gant, our Awards and Box Office Editor. After we finished chinwagging on Globes, BAFTAs, and SAGs, Finn recently sat down with Sundance Film Festival's senior programmer and director of strategic initiatives, John Nine. Sundance, of course, has made the Omicron-induced decision to move fully online for a second year running, but as a key launchpad for some of the biggest film stories and attention-grabbing titles of every year, for example, last year's eye-watering $25 million deal for the film Coda by Apple, there is always plenty to talk about, and John will be offering his insights into this year's program with Finn. But back to award season. So welcome, Finn and Charles. Tell me, are you both feeling dizzy by all the lists we've had over the course of this week? Just about hanging in there, Matt. What about you, Finn? No, it's been a bit fun to see things narrow down into where we half expected it might be with a couple of surprises and omissions. It's that time of year where a huge field starts to, you know, funnel down into what might be really, truly looking at the uh, big prizes. Well, let's start with BAFTA, our home awards. So BAFTA yesterday announced the long lists in all 24 of its film awards categories in which between seven and 20 films and performances per category were unveiled as progressing to the round where nominations will be decided. So this is what is now known as round one of what is now a three-stage voting process, which was brought in off the back of BAFTA's voting overhaul two years ago. So Charles, before we look at the films and categories themselves, it's probably useful just to give some insight into how these round one lists were created and what happens next. Well, in terms of how they were created, it is quite complicated. But best film is the outcome of uh, the voters, like all of the voters get to vote in best film. For best film, not in the English language, animation, British film and documentary. Those are the opt-in chapters. Everyone can opt in to vote in British film and you can opt in to vote for up to two of the other three chapters. So, for example, I choose to opt into documentary and film, not in the English language. Then all of the director, acting, screenplay and craft categories are the votes of the individual chapters. And the best, the outstanding British debut and the shorts are the outcome of juries. The added complication to all of this is that there is also a long-listing jury. And what that long-listing jury does is it augments the choices of all four acting categories and the director category. So, for example, in the director category, which is gender-balanced, the top seven men and top seven women directors are the results of the director chapter. And then the long-listing jury adds three for each gender to that list to produce a list of 20. And similarly, in acting, the top 12 in each category are the votes of the acting chapter, and the long-listing jury adds three into each category, and these are chosen from the next highest set of votes from that chapter. 
I hope that wasn't too complicated and frankly, too boring. Well, when I said dizzying at the start of this conversation, it is quite dizzying, isn't it? There's a lot, there's a lot of uh, different augmenting going on, as you say, in these different categories. And one thing that we know changed this year, for instance, was they evolved the acting categories in particular because they had some issues last year, I suppose, in terms of criticisms around the absence of Olivia Coleman for The Father and Carrie Mulligan for uh, Promising a Wound. And at that time, I think it was there was a shorter list of kind of popular votes going through, wasn't there? Well, yeah. So so the, the change that's happening in the acting category is actually to do with the next round. So last year, it was a jury that just picked six actors, actresses, supporting actors, supporting actresses from the long lists. And those were the pure votes of that jury. This year, the top two in each category, each acting category of these long lists are automatically through. So that jury can come in and say, oh, you know, we're not that impressed with, for example, Benedict Cumberbatch in The Power of the Dog. It could be Benedict is already through as one of the top two votes of that category. So the jury will only be able to pick four, two in each acting category are already through. They are the top votes from the first round. I see. I see. Well, let's look at some of the individual categories at this stage. And, and let's start off, of course, with the two biggies, best film and outstanding British film. What stands out for you in terms of what's made the long lists here, Finn? Matt, I'm still trying to process what Charles just <laughs> told me, which I know that I read and, and sort of makes sense to me now. When I look at those lists, you can see there's um, been a bit of a genetic engineering going on in them. They look a bit incoherent when you look at them as a whole, but when Charles explains it, you can see. So if you're talking about the best film, it's pretty clear to me with the best film that it shows who BAFTA really is and BAFTA likes the big film. There's no small little, you know, independent international films sneaking in here. It's West Side Story to, you know, Power of the Dog to French Dispatch, House of Gucci, Dune being the Ricardos. And, and, and I think that that's, that's who BAFTA has traditionally been and that's the kind of films they go for. And I think that Belfast is probably the only um, British independent film in there, if I'm not wrong, or it certainly feels like it anyway. I get the sense that Belfast will probably come through. Also pleased to see Power of the Dog come through as well. That's good. And um, I guess with a long like, list like this, you're trying to predict really what's going to fall away, you know, and that's hard to tell. And, and also too, I'm really pleased to see West Side Story with the Golden Globes as well, you know, kind of coming into focus that the industry is recognizing it because I really liked it and it um, it hasn't done everything that you might have expected it to do at the, at the box office. So that's a real nice vindication. This is the one category, as Charles said, where the entire voting membership has a say. So all these choices, of course, as you sort of say, Finn, will be probably a more mainstream reflection of the overall membership. But let's look at Outstanding British Film next. What do we think of this selection? Again, one film stands out by its omission, perhaps we should mention that. The Souvenir Part 2, once again, Joanna Hogg not making it through to this stage. Are we surprised by this? Yes, I'm surprised. I'm surprised. I thought people would have been horrified when the souvenir didn't make it through the first time and would have gone out of their way to vote for souvenir too, just to make it up to Joanna. <laughs> she she does appear in best director category, but yeah, I, I was really surprised. I thought, wow, twice. This time it's personal. But you know, what can you do? You know, especially if you're making a personal film like Joanna has made, is incredibly personal and singular. I mean, a lot of people aren't going to like it. And and if you look at the, you know, what I'm sort of saying before about the BAFTA. DNA of who is a BAFTA member and you look at those best films and then you can sort of see, well, yeah, well, like the kind of people who like that aren't going to 
aren't going to necessarily groove to Joanna. I mean, obviously, that's an omission. There, there are certainly inclusions that are a bit surprising. <laughs> Should we name names? <laughs> Say the Kingsman? You know, a bit surprised here. Um, it's sort of, it's, it's quite a sort of a dad's army list to a certain extent as well. <gasps> Operation Mincemeat, Munich, the edge of war. And uh, again, I, I can't help but feeling like, you know, we tend to get quite excited. We spend a lot of time talking to BAFTA. We look at juries and everything else like that. But the truth of who BAFTA is, the reality of what BAFTA is as an institution is coming through in these lists. For me, anyway, it's coming through for the lists. And what do you think, Charles? Well, I agree with you, Finn. I think that this feels like a bit of a less of a British independent film awards type list. I think last year it felt a bit more biffa-y, if I can use that as a word. And this year there are biffa type movies like After Love, Ali and Ava and Boiling Point in the mix. But movies like The Souvenir Part 2 and The Nest, which is such a fantastic film, got omitted and also True Things. And in their place... As you have rightly said, you have The Kingsman, but also, you know, really mainstream movies. I think No Time to Die absolutely deserves to be on this list. It's a towering achievement and it's this summation of five Daniel Craig films. It's fine to see it there. But do we need to have No Time to Die and House of Gucci and The Kingsman and Serrano? And as you point out, sort of some rather middle brow movies. It, it, it's hard to feel wholly excited about this list and it's kind of easy to miss the fact that there were good films like you know Rebecca Hall's Passing that made it in there but of course it should have been there it deserved to be there it kind of doesn't really deserve great applause for being there. Yes now now I'll just have to see what makes it through and you're absolutely right I was so busy talking about Joanna Hogg being passed over I forgot to mention highlights such as you know like you say boiling point and passing that I would have totally expected to be there delighted that they're there after love and yeah the nest what can I say I mean what can we do about the nest just tell everyone to watch it you you know it's just it's you know and the performances in it well there you go not every film hits the way it should do. So what happens next Finn is that the top five so going by the opt-in chapter votes the five most voted films are automatically nominated at the next round. And then another jury, a different jury, will pick the other five. So it's to be hoped that some of these really acclaimed independent films will be the selection of that jury, even if they're not among the top five of the voters, which, let's face it, they're probably not. Wow, Charles, does that mean we might see The King's Man then in the final list? <laughs> well, if you're saying it could be one of the top five by voters, then... Absolutely. If it is, it is nominated. We shall see. Let's move on to director next. So we also see a couple of the films, obviously, on the British film list, also making it through to director. Obviously, Rebecca Hall made it through for Passing. Uh, Aline Khan, our former star of Tomorrow, made it through her for his film After Love. This is also, interestingly, a very international list, which we're very pleased to see. Again, this is obviously where juries really play a part, don't they, Charles, with this gender balanced list. So 10 female directors and 10 male directors, uh, including three very acclaimed French female directors. So the directors of Titan, Julia Ducournau, the director of Happening, Audrey Dewan, and the director of Petit Maman. Celine Sciamma. So this list is an encouraging one, isn't it, do we think? Well, I mean, I think that there are three good things about the director, the way that they bring up the director list together. One is gender parity. So it's the top choices, the top men and the top women. The second one is the fact that it was voted for by the directors. 
themselves. So you've got some, you know, Joanna Hogg appears on this list because, frankly, directors have got good taste. And thirdly, you do have the long-listing jury that is helping to augment the list. And, you know, it's perhaps the case that some of the, for example, foreign language films were the additions of that jury, although it's, you know, hard for us to say. Well, yes, Charles, it's a much more interesting sort of fizzing list with international directors. It seems a bit more lively than, say, the best film category. And what about the four acting categories? What are your thoughts on those? Any significant omissions or pleasant surprises there? Well, I was pleasantly surprised. So one of the films that I love is Mass, which is the film about the uh, parents being brought together whose sons were involved in a mass shooting. Two of them are the parents of the perpetrator. The other two are the parents of the of one of the victims. And it's great to see Anne Dowd in Supporting Actress. I'm a bit disappointed that none of the other actors made it, particularly Jason Isaac in Supporting Actor. I think he's, his performance was great and something that you wouldn't expect to see from that actor. So it's a shame that he's missed out. On the other hand, I'm really happy in Supporting Actor to see the brilliantly talented child actor, Woody Norman for Come On, Come On who I think delivers a sensational performance. And I'm sure he's going to be a great talent to keep an eye on. And there was a lot of love in general for The Power of the Dog, for House of Gucci, for Lost Daughter. So Jesse Buckley made it through as well as Olivia Coleman. So certain films obviously did capture the attention of this section. And Charles as well, isn't it fantastic that Joanna Scanlon is there for After Love and the two leads from Ali and Ava, Adil Akhtar and uh, Claire Rushbrook. So in a way, it's got the independent and it's got the international, the big and the small. It's a, these categories are a nice mix. And Daniel Craig for No Time to Die, which is, you know, great. Well, talking of British independent films, I'd like to also add Vinette Robinson for Boiling Point who is so fantastic in that film. She won the British Independent Film Award for this category. She absolutely deserves to be in this list. And now, of course, the, you know, all these acting categories move over to a jury. The top two are automatically nominated, but those juries are going to be picking four names out of each category. And you've got to imagine that they're going to be giving serious attention to people like Vanette and Adil and Joanna Scanlon if they're not already through. Yes, and Stephen Graham, who can do no wrong. Stephen as well. Is it a little bit surprising? Do we think that the lead actress from Coda, Amelia Jones, and Troy Kotzer, who's a deaf actor from, from the same film, both made it through, and yet Marley Matlin, who herself is a previous Oscar winner, he did not make it through for this film? I think that's a little bit surprising. But on the other hand, I think I'm correct in saying that Troy Kotzer was nominated at the Screen Actors Guild Awards and Marley wasn't. So it does feel like there's just a bit more heat behind his performance. Yeah, and Don't Look Up is turning into, isn't this just turning into the film that the critics absolutely, you know, couldn't give it the time of day. And, you know, a lot of the early feedback from that film was negative, but it's found a real following, particularly with uh, younger people, I think, and, and in the protest movement and amongst the scientific community. So that film has turned out and is continues to turn out in a way that you wouldn't have expected if you read those reviews coming in the day that it launched. I agree, Finn, and it's 15 long list inclusions in total, which makes it level with West Side Story. So I don't think at the beginning of award season, we'd have to predict which would be the two most long listed films. I don't think Don't Look Up would have been one of the ones that we would have 
selected. It also picked up a Best Ensemble Cast SAG nomination, mm. which does, you know, really sets it up nicely for the rest of the, the award season. I agree with you, Charles. I mean, it's just one of those films, like I say, you would have written it off, but, you know, it's definitely out there. It seems to be gaining in notice and attention. And I also think that awards bodies tend to look for relevance when they vote for best pictures. They look for meaning. They look for a film that says something, you know. So that tends to be the default vote. You know, if you have a West Side Story versus a Don't Look Up, you're probably going to go, you know, well, this is meaningful. And, you know, it it means a lot to the climate movement. It's it's important, you know. So I I would say that it's looking very, very comfortable (laughs) at the moment going into the final countdown. And, And as I said before, younger people just absolutely love it. I know with my own children, you know, not very much registers with them in terms of, you know, what the films that we're talking about here, but they couldn't get to watch it quickly enough. Of course, the fact that it has an extremely starry cast probably doesn't hurt. And five of those actors have made it through on the uh, the BAFTA long list. So Jennifer Lawrence, Leonardo DiCaprio, Mark Rylance, Kate Blanchett and Meryl Streep. So they'll have some high hopes to make it through to the next round for at least uh, one or two of those. Well, shall we turn our attention now to the Screen Actor Guild nominations? You did mention that briefly, Charles. This is, of course, the American Labor Union that represents screen performance in the U.S. It is an extremely powerful union in Hollywood, and it's often seen as an indicator on the road to Oscar glory. So eight of the past 10 Best Actor and Best Actress winners have aligned between the SAG and the Oscars. And it was interesting that last year was probably one of the rare anomalies and that both categories feature different winners. So last year, the SAGs award went for Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman, whereas the Oscars eventually went to Anthony Hopkins and Francis McDormand. This year, I would say there's one omission on the Screen Actors Guild nomination list that stands out above all others, and that's Kristen Stewart, who was not nominated for her performance as Princess Diana in Spencer, even though she's been considered a front runner throughout this entire award season. So what's gone wrong there? Or has anything gone wrong? Are we just living in an echo chamber? And that's, we're thinking that Kristen's ahead of the pack when she's in actual fact is not? I have to say, I'm not on that Spencer bus, you know? I mean, <laughs> I think I think because I have a little bit of, you know, House of Windsor exhaustion at the moment. Um, there's been a lot, a lot of it. Quite looking forward to Princess, the film that, the documentary film that's in, in Sundance this year. And there's quite a lot on it. And I know that people really rated Kirsten Stewart's performance, but I just couldn't move away from the fact that the film just didn't really do it for me. That's a really fancy critical term there <laughs> the film didn't really do it for me I also wondered too like is there just an exo- a sort of a house of Windsor exhaustion I mean and you, you can't move too far away from the fact that our good Prince Andrew at the moment is sort of you know that, that whole case is is not giving everything a good feeling or and maybe that's why people haven't voted for her could that be I don't know about the house of Windsor exhaustion but I do find it interesting that Spencer actually didn't do that well on the BAFTA long lists either. Although Christian Stewart appeared on the long list, Spencer wasn't there for best film, was not there for best director, was not there for best original screenplay. So actually, is it the case that we're all living in this award season echo chamber, and I apologise because I'm part of that, where we're all sort of telling each other things are going to make headway because that's what everyone else thinks. But actually, when it actually comes down to it, Perhaps Finn's view is more reflective of the reality, and clearly it's reflective of the reality of the members of the Screen Actors Guild, of which there were thousands in America. 
So it will be interesting to see how this actually pans out. I was just talking to an awards campaigner in the UK, and his view is that he feels that Spencer is sort of fading a bit overall apart from for Kristen. But actually, despite him feeling that the Kristen vote is holding up, SAG say different. Interesting. And Charles, what about the ensemble category for the SAGs? Because that's seen as a bellwether often for best picture winners. But this year perhaps might not be the case, or is that has has that proven to be less the case in recent times? Well, it's interesting because in the outstanding performance by a cast, we've got Belfast, Coda, Don't Look Up, House of Gucci and King Richard. And certainly some of those films are considered to be strong in the Best Picture Oscar. But missing from that lineup is Power of the Dog and West Side Story, I think notable omissions. And particularly, I think when you have a slightly more contained cast and essentially Power of the Dog is for lead actors, you think, well, that's not such a rich ensemble and you can perhaps understand why that's not there. Having said that, Coda is essentially sort of four lead actors and that's there. And the West Side Story is very much a bigger ensemble. So I think the fact that West Side Story isn't there is a bit bit more of a concern for them. But you're right, Matt, in recent years, this category, which for so long was viewed as being, you know, a very significant bellwether for Oscar, the best picture Oscar winner has not appeared in this category. Last year, Nomadland won the Oscar best picture, was not nominated for cast at the SAGs. The year before, Parasite. The year before that, Green Book. And the year before that, Shape of Water. So you have to go all the way back to Moonlight to find a film that picked up a SAG cast nomination and went on to win Best Picture. Interesting. And as you sort of say, King Richard was one of the ensemble nominees this year. And yet, again, another omission that surprises me a little bit, Anjanou Ellis, who plays Venus and Serena Williams' mother, was not nominated for King Richard. But that's a really competitive category this year, isn't it? Supporting actress. I think it's a competitive category, but I think I would have thought Anjanou is a, is a front runner in that category. So I was very very surprised. I think it perhaps doesn't help that she competes in that category with both of the actresses who play Venus and Serena Williams. So you've got the King Richard vote potentially split three ways. And if Ingenue is going to, I guess, sort of proceed in the rest of these awards, I think that King Richard fans are perhaps going to have to pick a winner. I want her to win just based on her first name alone. And Ariana DeBose, the only nomination for West Side Story for her role as Anita. So as you were saying, not a whole lot of love for West Side Story performances as opposed to House of Gucci, which really kind of got nominations for all its major contenders. I think House of Gucci really benefits from everybody being in different categories. Correct me if I'm wrong. I guess um, Jared Leto is competing with Al Pacino for the attention of of voters in supporting actor. But in general, they're sort of more spread out. I think that there are a lot of different actors who are in contention for best supporting actor and supporting actress in the West Side Story. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. Certainly on the BAFTA long list, that is the case. Well, it makes sense for Alan and Jared to be in the same category, given they were in their own different comic film to the rest of the cast. (laughs) It's so funny too, isn't it, that it's such a heightened piece, House of Gucci, you know, with everybody and these these accents and the vote has been for a performance, which is really, they're unreal, those performances, you know, it's not just, I mean, Jeremy Irons is also somewhere else there too, you know, I just find it interesting, the artifice that's being recognised. 
Yeah, but I wonder whether that is going to perhaps inhibit them from winning. Because if you accept those are Marmite performances, you have people who really, really like those performances. Enough of those people can earn it a nomination. But if there's an, an equivalently large group of people who, who really are resisting some, I do wonder whether that's going to get in the way of a win. You're absolutely right. For some people, it just works and other people just can't bear it. <laughs> really quite strong reactions. You're right, Charles. Well, the SAG Awards will take place on February 27th, so we'll see what its members go for then. But a set of awards that have already taken place are the Golden Globes earlier this week. So we know the Globes weren't broadcast as a ceremony this year due to the controversy over its very undiverse membership, which they have been taking steps to address. But it's fair to say that the industry gave them a pretty cold shoulder this year, and in place of a live ceremony attended by the great and the good which is known to be a very drunken and convivial affair in hollywood and attended by most of the a-listers competing for awards that year the winners were instead announced in a series of tweets that were mercilessly mocked in the twitter sphere the most bizarre one coming when west side stories win was announced as the winner of best motion picture musical or comedy with the line if laughter is the best medicine west side story movie is the cure for what ails you so the question is <laughs> Did this year's Globes matter at all? Should Jane Campion be happy that The Power of the Dog won Best Motion Picture Drama? Does Nicole Kidman get a boost in the race from winning Best Actress in a Drama for being the Ricardos? Charles, Finn, what do we think? You mean if a tree falls in the forest and no one sees, did it really fall? I think that question might be pertinent to this year's Globes. I actually have just been cheating and looked up to see who won because it didn't really register. I think that the, the determination of the Hollywood publicists to completely blank these awards and have their talent not react in any way definitely reduced the amount of you know interest on traction on social media that resulted I think if there's one category if I had to pick a single category where I think it might make a little bit of a difference is probably in foreign language film the fact that drive my car won for that category I think you know the people behind drive my car are not too proud to accept the endorsement of the Golden Globe voters. They're happy to see their film sort of edging ahead of movies like Hand of God, which are considered front runners in, in the category. And I think it does help. What at the end of the day is, you know, quite a highbrow art house three hour film, just sort of get a little bit of extra attention. Well, you know, I, I'm a bit different to you, Charles, in that the Globes are our brand name, aren't they? You know, like Gucci. They are there. And I did notice that although, you know, we, again, in our sort of bubble, were focusing on the fact that the publicists had shunned them and they did it by Twitter. But I did notice that they got a great deal of coverage in the international consumer press with the note that the Globes had been discredited, but they were still covered. While you had to look far and wide to sort of see coverage of the BAFTA long list outside our um, the trade magazines. And it did make me smile in a kind of, you know, when I saw that Nicole had won, because they just have always loved her so much. And it just, it just, it felt like, oh, here we go. They're still there. And, um, and Andrew Garfield as well, you know, musical comedy, you know, it's just, that's just so the Globes to see it up there. And I had a little flash of nostalgia, although, you know, obviously I'm not sort of thinking that the Globes are just so brilliant and they need to be the way they always were. But it's a bit like Bafti in a way, what I was saying earlier, you can't change the DNA, you know, can you? You can sort of muck around the edges, but they're always going to love Nicole. They're always going to give her that, you know, whether she hands it back or not. I don't think she did, did she? She didn't hand it back. Tom Cruise did. 
Yeah, Tom mailed his back, but I think Nicole still has her proudly stacked on a shelf somewhere. <laughs> I have to say I missed it because not least because every year they have a, a host, Ricky Gervais, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, who always come out with a number of quotable things, which we're all watching on YouTube for the following week ahead. So I, I did miss the Globes this year, but we shall see if they return festooned in glory next year with their newly diverse membership. Let's see what happens there. Finn, Charles, thank you very much for your insights. And Finn, we very much look forward now to listening to your interview with John Nine from Sundance. Until next time, both of you, have a good day. See you then. I'm here with John Nine, who's a senior programmer of the Sundance Film Festival. They've been having quite a torrid time with Sundance, announced the program is going to be a mix of online and physical, and then have had to change within the last week very quickly. John, how's it been for you? <laughs> it's been very, very busy. Yeah, it was, um, you know, we had that ambitious plan, as you said, for the mix of online and in person. And we thought it was a really great plan. There was a lot of thought that went into it and around the health and safety protocols, all of which, you know, were announced early. And we said, you know, kind of all along that we were going to follow the data and the science. And that is ultimately what happened. It became very clear that Summit County, which is where Park City is located, was already reaching its capacity, uh, was already stretched, and they were anticipating the peak right in the middle of the festival. In fact, I learned yesterday that Summit County has the fifth highest infection rate in the entire country right now. So the idea that the festival would have added to the burden of that, you know, to the tune of tens of thousands of people, we just concluded in the end that it was not safe or responsible to move forward you know, with the in-person activities, but it's been a real disappointment, you know, for us, of course, for the filmmakers who we've been talking to for the last week, for the industry who I think we're excited to get back to Park City and be there in person. So in the end, it was the right decision for us to make, but it was, you know, it was disappointing and it was a pretty brutal week. Well, I mean, it's a tough call. And I think, as you said, uh, you know, the industry, I hope you could feel certainly, you know, from our point of view, it's green, the industry support for you and really wanting you to succeed in this hybrid and then, and then it not happening. But of course, at the same time, there's absolutely nothing disappointing about your program, John. <laughs> you know? So it's just a different, you know, at the end of the day, We've got to kind of realize that we're, we're living with what we have and you've only lost one title, I believe. That's right. I mean, I was going to say the program is the same and we are as excited about it as we were a week ago. It's a great program. We did lose the one title and, and obviously that's a huge disappointment. I think we'd been working hard for a lot of years to show Sundance as a platform for more established international auteurs to premiere work. Certainly we've you know, we've premiered Call Me By Your Name, Souvenir and Education. Those are English language films. So the idea of uh, a French language film, Michel Aznavicius, uh, you know, obviously a very respected director that uh, I think would have been a, a great film for Sundance. But that was the only title that is no longer part of the program. And we're super excited about the films that are part of the program. Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that's quite a, you know, for, for people who thought that they were having, because lots of filmmakers, of course, they just live for that opening night, you know, and that's what they really want. And to only lose one as a result of that's really not a high number. I mean, we were talking earlier on in the podcast about this year's um, 
you know, nominations and the Golden Globe Awards and the BAFTA long list. And even though you were in lockdown last year and you were in online last year, Sundance made a huge contribution to that, titles like Mass and Coda and The Summer of Soul, of course, you know. So you manage it and, you know, you're a hands-on programmer, John, you know, and you're sort of like now two years into the pandemic. So let's go back. Last year, you're online. You're the first festival to go completely online. You did an, an amazing job with it. You're sort of programming films that have been made up until then. Going into this year, was there fewer films on the ground? Was it more difficult to program when you're not traveling? You're a veteran now. So what's your feeling? It was certainly different. I, I think there are relationships that you have or that you create over the years um, that allow you to know what's out there, right? And to actually gauge what it is that you're anticipating. That's certainly true internationally, but also within the US. And so, you know, you have to work harder to sort of replicate that mechanism, right? And, and sort of the ear to the ground part of the job where you are trying to get a sense of what's bubbling up and what's gonna be exciting. But the truth is you can still do that. And we did, you know, and, and so films, like you mentioned, some of the ones from last year, we were not only happy to have in the program, but then ultimately, as you're talking to people afterwards, whether it's industry or whether it's the general public who saw these films, you know, you have these conversations and they mirror the ones you've had in years past. People were emotionally moved by these stories. I mean, mass, you know, the number of people I talked to who were devastated by, you know, watching mass or the number of people who just thought Coda was such a special moving emotionally powerful experience. And so, you know, you're heartened by the idea that that transformative power still exists and, and people can have that engagement with the films. And obviously we're hoping that that's something that happens again this year. And, you know, we did learn from last year, obviously the silver lining being the notion of the virtual festival's accessibility and the idea that new audiences came from that and that we had people watching these movies who don't typically come to Park City, there's something exciting about that as well too. So you look for the silver linings and we're excited for people to have those same experiences with these films. And I think that they will continue to do well, both in terms of, of sales and the idea that they will reach wider audiences later on with some kind of general release, whatever that looks like three months or six months or eight months from now, who knows? But I think we did not notice a lack of films out there. We didn't notice, you know, something discernible about how they were made even necessarily. When you look at the films in the program, you don't see films that are overtly about the pandemic. Now you certainly see the way that it's baked into some of the stories. There are a lot of stories about grief and loss. There are a lot of stories that maybe are filmed in a slightly different way than uh, more sort of intimate character driven stories. So, you know, you can sort of make some guesses about how it is that artists were processing this moment in time, not just with the pandemic, but obviously with, you know, racial justice in this country, uh, and elsewhere. So it's it's an interesting process to sort of try to figure out how it is that artists are processing this time. Well, can we just, you know, before I go into asking you really about your sort of travels on Zoom and on the internet, because you've got a far-flung international program and how that worked out, but probably like choosing your babies, but can you highlight any films in Sundance this year? Last year, we saw Coda do a record-breaking sale, and now it's it's turning up in, in the awards, and we, we, we've seen Fresh already do a, an interesting searchlight 
direct a streaming deal in advance of Park City coming to life online. Have you got any kind of films that you want to highlight with the absolute proviso that all films are equal in your heart, et cetera, et cetera? <laughs> all films, of course, are equal in my heart. I look and I try to find patterns in the in the festival. I do think there are some. You mentioned the sales that have taken place already, Fresh, and then also Alice made a good deal. I think the most notable quality of the U.S. films and the idea that you see a lot of films that are appropriating genre and kind of bending and reframing genre storytelling in order to dissect race and privilege. I'm thinking of films like Master, which I think is an incredibly well-directed film, uh, Nanny, Emergency, Alice, which I just mentioned, God's Country. That's an extraordinary group of films that are really changing the way that one thinks about genre. And then, you know, I guess I found a real excitement in the way that nonfiction filmmakers were also bending form and sort of, you know, the creativity that you see within nonfiction. I'm thinking of Sarah Dosis from Fire of Love, which is a, a love story about uh, French volcano scientist Kasia and Maurice Kraft. But, you know, sort of a film that only one person could make that way. Riotsville, USA is another film that uses archival footage about U.S. Army training for civil unrest, but in such a creative way. And I think that, you know, that's a pattern that we saw where you really saw this thing that we talk about all the time, right? Personal storytelling, directors with a distinctive voice. And, you know, there's a way that that can sometimes become an ethereal thought. And I think what's cool is you see it illustrated in this program in so many interesting ways. We need to talk about Cosby could only be made by Kamau Bell, an African-American comedian who grew up in awe of Cosby, you know, uh, Fire of Love, I mentioned. There's a lot of, I think, distinction in terms of the storytelling voices. And that's true internationally as well, too. You know, I, I guess, you know, I think of Living, the Oliver Humanas film that's written by Kazuo Ishiguro. That seems like Kazuo Ishiguro's story in a way. It's a remake of Akira, of the Kurosawa film. But in a weird way, you watch it and you're like, this character could have been in so many of Ishiguro's novels. You know, this is a character who's kind of beleaguered by a system, the unconscious complicity with the system. And it, it makes you think of, you know, some of the characters in his books, Ono and Artists of Floating Worlds, you know, the Stevens in, in Remains of the Day, maybe the, the couple in Buried Giant. It's that idea of what is distinctive about that approach to this story. And I think those are some of the things that really stand out to me in terms of, you know, the creativity of the program. How about, I mean, not a lot of people are as aware of, though, of course, you're becoming more and more aware of the world cinema, dramatic and world cinema documentary competitions, which tend to throw up some, some real gems in there, which travel the festival circuit in a quiet way throughout the year. Some more so than, you know, Souvenir, as you pointed out, came from there, or Ramonos. I mean, there's been so many. And they're very far flung. It's always a very wide net that you have there with young and emerging, very emerging international filmmakers. Is there anything that you could point to there for, us that might be helpful you know talk a bit about the range of what what you've got going yeah and it does feel like a range just like the other programs I would say on one hand you know you have a UK film Brian and Charles which I really love you know this idea of a, a lonesome man who lives in you know a, a cottage in the middle of a Welsh valley and out of loneliness builds a robot who ends up becoming a companion and it's a very funny film and you know there are a lot of escapades that follow. 
but it really it's about loneliness and it's a it's a kind of melancholic beautiful film that is ultimately i think audiences are going to love this film it's a it's a very emotional but also very funny film and then on the other hand i think there are films that are dealing with the world as we see it today and contemporary issues you know i think of klondike which is a, a film set in ukraine that deals with the war in ukraine and a very specific place and family that's sort of caught in no man's land so to speak in between two warring parties and is such a strong directing vision you know it's an incredibly formal film but also getting to that idea of artists engaging with the issues of the day using a form that is personal to them i really also like you know speaking of a personal form you know i think you won't be alone which is the debut feature of goran stalevski he's a Australian Macedonian filmmaker whose shorts um we really really love we played one a few years ago and it actually won the international competition and it is a witch film and if you read the logline the story is about a witch it's not like any witch film i have ever seen it it has this notion of a transcendent spirit and it ends up being using that as a device to ask what it means to be human and there are different actors who play this very same which throughout time as she inhabits different bodies i've never seen a film like this in my life it's such an original film um you know and then and then we have kind of the quirkier film from the philippines leonor will never die which is consciously appropriating the genre films the filipino action films of the 80s and 90s in a way that tells the story of a matriarch processing her own life the loss of a child it's so fresh and and kind of like this joyful way of using the love of cinema to tell a story about family so i don't know i mean we just there's all kinds of films in the section as there always are and i hope that uh yeah i for, i even forgot the cow that sang a song into the future is a beautiful film as well too also from a filmmaker who made a short that won uh one of our short sections a few years ago and i think people are going to are, are just going to be blown away by that film it's also a a sort of a story also about grief and loss and a family coming together on a in a sort of dairy farm in chile it's a, it's a, an amazing film as well so i don't know there's there's like there's so many great films no oh, can't wait every time i speak to you i'm like oh, always like oh, can't wait <laughs> so much to see and it, it, you know you as a festival i've always like been sort of slightly unafraid or maybe sort of a provocative a bit and i'm thinking about the two you know just one film about the james the underground um abortion network in chicago of the late 1960s one you have two this year one fiction um a, a drama and you also have a documentary i mean is that a deliberate just to, to get the extra kind of power to it so it's not just one it's two or can you talk a little bit about that because maybe you're expecting that to get a, a little bit of coverage or perhaps make a bit of noise you know there was nothing conscious about showing both films in the same program other than they both were incredibly worthy films that happened to be about the same subject but obviously take a completely different approach and and in some way show the power of each form to kind of tell a story um a historical story from different angles um and i would add to those two films happening which we're showing in the spotlight section also about women's reproductive rights 
And that, you know, we even have an archive film, Just Another Girl on the IRT, which is an interesting look at a woman making a choice about motherhood in the early 90s. There's a way in which the Janes and Called Jane happening, Just Another Girl on the IRT, all fit into, I think, what we recognize to be both here in the U.S. and also across the world, a, a conversation that is happening right now that artists are engaging with and that we all have to have as a society, there is, you know, despite the similarity in subject matter, there's a very rich way of engaging with that conversation by having seen both films, by having seen Happening and the other films. So, you know, it's not so much a, a desire to make a point as it is to respect the work of two of, of these filmmakers who are dealing with this moment in time. Well, I've seen the documentary already myself, and I can absolutely understand why you've programmed it. It's one of those stories that you, you can't imagine the drama could match something like that. And I'm glad that you have programmed it. It's just sometimes you feel, you know, you're in a conservative state as well. <laughs> you know? so it's like, it's um, yeah, let's move on from that line of thought to me asking you really, how has the business of Sundance, which is a really important business, and we mentioned before last year, the deals that you had when you were wholly online. How have you seen that change over the last year and how do you anticipate the business of buying, selling, promoting, whatever to go down next week? I wish I had a good answer to that. I don't know if the distributors even have a good answer to that. I think everybody is dealing with the uncertainty of the market and the uncertainty around how films are released. They're all mindful as we are of the sort of fluctuations in which certain films maybe are selling because there's the perception that within the streaming market, there's an appetite for these certain kinds of films. But you know, the, the entire buyer community was clearly very eager to be coming to Sundance and to acquire films. And we were hearing that from everybody. And one took from that the sense that there was a healthy market for acquisitions and that that will be the case in one week, regardless of the means by which distributors are watching the work, I do think that, you know, they are all asking questions about what they release in theaters, what they release online through streaming, et cetera, et cetera. And those are, you know, questions that I don't get a strong sense of an answer for. I think everybody's still sort of coming up with their model as they go along. My feeling is that the acquisitions market will be healthy. It, we, we have some indication of that already, as you pointed to with the pickups before the festival. So, you know, but it's really interesting to hear these distributors sort of trying to wrestle with how it is that they release specialty film. And I don't know that I get a strong sense of an answer for them. And I don't think it's through a lack of transparency. I think it's through the fact that they're really sort of still trying to figure out what's going to happen. What, is the, what does it look like with people going to theaters two months from now, five months from now in the summer? I don't know. I think there are some questions, obviously, around that, but people will be coming to Sundance to acquire films. And I think we feel that there are films within the lineup that will meet that demand. They will want to buy. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I know that you're super busy. You guys have had to rejig your program completely in the space of like 48 hours or something crazy like that. I don't know how you did it. I just, I mean, I know that you're not, you know, you're not a fortune teller, you're not Mystic Meg or, you know, you can't see into the future, but there's a great deal of anxiety, certainly in this part of the world about the future of the independent marketplace, you know? 
and I presume that you're you're feeling it where you are too. It's real anxiety, and and you you did reference the point earlier on that you weren't seeing any lack of palpable, noticeable lack of product that you you're you're seeing to program. So is your sense that you know we're carrying on, and and where does that place festivals? If that's the case, doesn't that make your position now very important and and kind of a little bit nerve wracking as well? Yeah, I mean, we happily did have a plan in place to make this pivot and, and, you know, to be able to, I think, ensure that the industry was able to come to a festival with a reputation for filtering work and sort of, you know, providing films for the marketplace. That's one of the things we do. It's certainly not the only thing that we feel is important, but the idea that the anxiety is out there is clear. And I don't know that the you know prospectus for American specialty film is any clearer than it is in other places in the country. My sense is that people have an inventive spirit, a sort of ingenuity that has so far, you know, sort of met the time, met the moment. And I think of some of these smaller distributors who are doing really interesting things, who are, who, you know, sort of in this moment when they've said, okay, well, we're now in this world of virtual screenings and you saw the relationship between theaters and distributors change. You saw the notion of how it is that you appeal to different communities online change. There was a lot of innovation in that. I think about, you know, a lot of the companies who were doing some really interesting things. That is confidence building, right? Like you do get a sense that these are really clever, creative people who are part of the specialty distribution market in the U.S. who are like, oh, okay, well, we're going to have to change some things about how we do. In a way, I acknowledge the anxiety. I think it's real. I think, you know, the truth is we were asking some of these questions before the pandemic. There, were, there was a sense of fragility to the market even before all of this happened. The interesting thing to me that has happened in the two years since is that people have been more open to solutions. They have maybe through, I wouldn't say desperation, but let's say through the need to innovate, you know, maybe have been pushed to look at solutions that have a more enduring future than than merely the end of the pandemic. It could be that there's some really interesting creative solutions come out of this period. But yeah, no, I mean, I'm not going to pretend that there aren't some really existential questions about how films get out there. But I also think that in the process of innovating these last two years, maybe there's been a a shift in how people think that they can connect the work with the audience. And that's always been the core question, right? Do any of us really doubt that there's an audience out there? No, there's, there's absolutely an audience out there. The challenge has always been how do you find that audience? And so I don't know, I'm, I'm sober of the reality and yet also optimistic that there are some very creative people thinking of new ways to connect you know, the work and the audience. Well, I take a lot of heart from the fact that you said that there's no um, scarcity, that there's no shortage, because, you know, everyone has assumed that there would be a point where we came to, you know, the bowl was empty, but you think not. So that's great. Well, maybe, you know, it's a testament to the flexibility of, you know, the independent spirit and the idea that you absolutely, you talk to independent producers who are looking at, you know, the increases in budget that are threatening the very viability of their film. And yet at the same time, have we not seen these moments throughout the history of the independent movement, at least here, where people find solutions, people find a way around, you know, how many times have I read an article 
titled the death of independent film or something like it you know it's so true it's so true well let's hope that's the case and um we could just wish you and your team everything you would wish from from your festival i hope it's incredibly successful for you and i I can't wait to see the film so thanks john for spending time with us and good luck thank you appreciate your time That's all for this week's episode of The Screen Podcast. Thank you very much to my colleagues, Finn and Charles, and also thank you very much to our guest for today's podcast, John Nine from the Sundance Film Festival. We wish him and his team all the very best at the upcoming festival, and thank you very much for listening. Our next awards-themed episode will come out towards the end of this month, so please keep an eye out for that. And in the meantime, keep up with the latest news from the international screen industries at ScreenDaily.com and also at our social media outposts, including at ScreenDaily on Twitter. This episode was produced by Danielle Kosh. Tune in next time. We'll see you then.